On today's episode of the Afrinuk Podcast, we bring you a vast global personality, David Bray. He likes to be called a digital diplomat and a human flake jacket for teams of change agents working in turbulent environments. He has given talks to audience of more than 3,000 people across continents. Today, you'll be imbued with immense knowledge from this great resource. Dr. David Bray has served in a variety of leadership roles in turbulent environments involving people, tech, and data for public good. In fact, he took up a leading role launching the Geotech Center of the Atlantic Council in COVID turbulent times. His previous roles include bioterrorism preparedness and response from year 2000 to year 2005 and a time on the ground in Afghanistan in 2009. Business Insider named him one of the top 24 Americans who are changing the world under 40 and he was named a young global leader by World Economic Forum for year 2016 to 2021. He later completed a PhD from Emory University's Gazeta Business School and two postdoctoral associateships at MIT and Harvard in 2008. Listen for a load of interconnectedness, I will say, and the relevance of nuclear security clarified in the mix of this interconnectedness by this great global personality, David Bray, PhD. Okay, so uh, it's it was really nice uh, meeting you during the N Square Forum, and um, uh, the meeting and everything we had was really really pointing to a, a very pressing issue about um, what we are experiencing now especially in this um, covid um, era and hopefully we will come out of it and perhaps learn some new things or continue in what we've been doing so um i so much appreciate the you, you accepting the invitation to feature on to uh, on this um edition of the afrinuke podcast we're well, so, really glad to connect and again really great to connect with you thank yes. you so much so this podcast is about nuclear issues nuclear security inclusive and what surrounds it uh, these days we're talking about climate change and the need to adopt efficient measures low carbon measures to thin our energy needs and uh, nuclear is one of those low carbon um, energy resource that um, we need to um, to meet our energy needs and um, in a very much um, um, low carbon um, form so uh, this podcast is um, launched to capture the low carbon energy resource which nuclear represents and also every other aspect that um, spins off from nuclear technology and I believe strongly that um, since you are in the N-Square forum uh, uh, you are engaged in the nuclear security aspect so I think you are a very great fit and uh, considering your activities in Atlantic uh, Council we can see how we can um, have a very good nexus for this um, so sure uh, yes go ahead yeah Mm -hmm. my name is Jeremiah Mbazo and I want to um, welcome um, I'm David Bray from Atlantic Council, the Geotech Center in in the U.S. So um, welcome, David Bray. And please, can you tell us a bit about you as a way of introduction and what you do? Sure. Uh, Well, again, thanks for having me on the podcast. Really glad to be here with you. And and thank you for the invitation. Um, The the Atlantic Council's Geotech Center um, is focusing on how data and technologies are changing the world, changing societies, changing geopolitics. And and we were launched, um, we, we, we were we were sort of in inception mode in late 2019 and and, and then and planned to launch in early 2020. We actually scheduled the, the launch date and had everything arranged. And we, we, we launched the morning of March the 11th, 2020, which that same day later, uh, COVID-19 was declared a pandemic. So we had a, a very, we were born in the midst of fire, so to speak, uh, or, or had a very auspicious beginning. <laughs> and, 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 and with that in mind, we really have been looking at how technology is changing uh, 
uh, and how the pandemic is changing and how data is changing uh, the world that we operate in, changing geopolitics, of which, as you mentioned, one aspect is uh, nuclear security, um, but also thinking about everything from AI to space to, to bio to supply chains and cybersecurity and more. And on the nuclear security front, uh, I actually got involved with N-Square back in 2017, I guess. Uh, they, they, they initially had me as an advisor and I've remained an advisor in, 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 in different roles uh, within Square uh, since then. Uh, I spoke at one of their in-person events when, when in-person travel was possible too. And, and my, my interest with N-Square really is, if anything, we've seen other technologies go from being only available to a few, only being available to a few nation states to increasingly becoming democratized. And, and in some cases, that's good. I mean, I really like the fact that, quite frankly, for example, ice cream is, is, is now more available to people than it was when it first came out. I mean, apparently the story of ice cream, initially, it was a very rare and expensive treat uh, for the king of France. Um, and, and obviously, we've, we've now made it so that it can be available to more people. And that's just one small example. I mean, you look at the internet, uh, we've gone from 1969, when there were all of six nodes on the internet, to now um, half the planet getting connected to the internet, hopefully more in the years ahead, um, but also the amount of devices on the internet. There are now anywhere between 35 to 45 billion network devices wow. relative to just 7.8, 7.9 billion people on the planet. So we humans are actually now the minority on the planet relative to, to uh, network devices on the planet. So, so, so technology tends to become more accessible, more democratized to people. And when we think about that in terms of nuclear, uh, nuclear devices, nuclear warheads and things like that, that's actually not necessarily something we want to see. I'm not, I'm not for everyone having it, their own home nuclear device at, at, in the house. I don't think that's a good idea. Yeah. And so the question, it, it raises this very interesting question, which is if technology tends to become more affordable and available and accessible, yet we don't want it for nuclear because of the, the risk of nuclear, this raises a very interesting question about what are effective strategies to either deter, to hold it back, to, to interrupt the supply chains that might make it available, um, and, and to make it so this is an activity that's not just done by a few. I don't think we can do that anymore. I don't think this can be done just by the national security communities of different nations. I think it's something where we do need to involve um, the general population and, and, and also private sector in coming up with solutions, whether it's detecting things from space, detecting things uh, through other means that can ideally work towards a world in which there is less risk of nuclear devices becoming something that can actually become a harm to us all. Um, and, and I'm not I'm not one that, I mean, it would be very great if we could have a world in which nobody had nuclear devices, but I'd be very worried if we're in a world where nobody had any nuclear devices, all it would take is one to get it and then there'd be huge risk. Yeah. But it's more of a question about what can we do to work towards a world in which these are not things that we are worried about actually being used. These are not things that we are worried about actually killing large amounts of people. Yeah, that's great. Like uh, you're giving a very great um, and very deep expose of um, what you do in your in your in your organization and um, it, it's such a broad and very uh, <laughs> large um, area and scope of um, uh, of reach if I may say and um, I think it's trying to like inform us on the way we should make our choices on how to go about modernization and democratization of um, of technology and all that um, comes with it so but you made a very salient point about uh, nuclear security and why we should be very very much um, uh, conservative uh, in terms of technology when releasing, although uh, most African countries don't um, have to worry about the 
is because the Pelindaba Treaty of South Africa has um, actually meant that um, we, we, we relinquish every hold to any nuclear weapons or things in that category. So uh, in most African countries, we don't hold on to such. But uh, those uh, major um, uh, nuclear weapon states, uh, I think um, they need to make more, um, uh, kind of show more leadership in terms of um, um, giving heed or um, adhering to those um, uh, treaties and um, and conventions that um, uh, necessitates them to uh, not to develop further or like to, to degrade their nuclear weapon capabilities. So uh, thank you for that um, um, illustration on, on, uh, on nuclear security, but I want to a little bit go closer to what um, your company, uh, your organization, Geotech, the Geotech Center in Atlantic Council does. So kind of um, tries to capture a whole very broad um, range of issues that are happening around our society today. And I kind of wonder, we are kind of getting into a kind of um, information ocean, if I may say. Uh, there's this uh, man that said it's like an information overload kind of age in which we are. So I, I wonder, like, how do we avoid the extremes of, uh, and try to maintain a balance in this mix? I know that we should limit some information and at some point we need to give out this information to enable innovation and stuff like that. But how do we strike a balance in this information ocean we find ourselves in this age, sir? Yes. Uh, well, I think you hit the nail on the head, which is, again, the trend that, 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 that not only do technologies tend to become more accessible and available, but also information itself. And, and so when information increasingly becomes available on how to um, construct nuclear devices or the risk of nuclear devices, that, that poses a very interesting risk and, and a question, which is, um, do we censor it? Do we remove it? Um, but does that then cut into freedom of speech? You know, should it be out there? And, and I think that's, that's where it's a really hard question. I think it's going to be answered um, individually by different um, localities and nations that, okay. that have different solutions. Um, I think it's going to have to be answered, but um, recognizing again, we're still connected to the internet. And yeah. so, um, you know, you may decide that for your people and for other nations may choose that it is. And if they put it on the internet and you can find it, um, does that just defeat your, your very own purpose? And so, yeah, I think yeah. it's, I got uh, it. I, if I had to, if I had to pick a leaning, I would pick a leaning that says we should err towards not putting information that makes it uh, accelerate the democratization of or the accessibility of nuclear devices that would mean us harm. I think there's there's a lot of danger in that. Um, just like, you know, there, there was the whole controversy about should science publish the um, the, the complete sequence for the polio virus or, or the Spanish influenza of, eight, of 1918. I think that's, again, that's one of those cases where you have to balance the interests of the public with the risk to people having mass harm or, or people using it for less than purpose so yeah that's a very great um, uh, point from you and um, in, in terms of educating the public not how to build it how to educate the public it's very important for us to know um, how uh, how um, relevant it is to control the access to information that um, might portend danger to the public then that's the very good point from you sir uh, mm -hmm. most African countries have signed and ratified the non-proliferation TT but some countries have not and um, I don't know like if you have much details about um, the implication of um, this kind of um, signatories and um, what it means for those who have signed and those who have not signed it. I mean, like, well, I'd be interested in your thoughts as well. I mean, I, I would say it would be worth asking for those who have not signed, why? Are they holding out for concessions? Do they think they can get a, a more favorable set of terms? Or do they have nuclear aspirations? And I think those are all um, questions worth asking. Um, I would say if you look at, you know, if there, if, there is a, if there is a somewhat good news story over the last 
decade or two. Yeah. It's that we now see deterrence uh, by nation states through cyber means uh, relative to nuclear means. That that now you know the risk that someone could cause a really bad um, day to your civilian infrastructure through cyber means, which you know while harmful and could possibly hurt some people, doesn't destroy the planet. If that's the way we now do deterrence and, and um, nation state um, um, conflicts versus nuclear, I at least celebrate that. And I guess I would ask the question for Africa, which is you know for those who have not signed um, nuclear non-proliferation agreements, my question would be why. And I'd be interested in your thoughts on that too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> anyway, uh, there's this guy uh, Jeremy Rifkin who consider him like. Um, a future prophet like a, a prognosticator if I may say so he talked about the zero marginal cost society in one of his books so and um, I see our society today tending towards that because the cost to produce some things that uh, used to be very expensive like heavy industry like the 3D and everything has really made the cost of producing some things that goes through a, a whole line of the process um, industry very cheap and you can have a tabletop um, uh, uh, um, kind of um, 3D printer that can make some components for, for our devices, either the cell phone or some things that we find very good use of in our in our domain. So this has led to like proliferation and um, democratization, as we said initially, of um, of products and also innovation as well. I wonder, like, um, you have also posited that this should not um, tend towards uh, the harm of our society, but, you know, we cannot prevent these things from happening in a negative way, you know. Technology mm-hmm. itself is is neutral it's it's cannot on itself go, go wrong or like except it's used for the wrong purpose it's it comes for to aid human um, abilities in, in some form so as things get cheaper that could be of harmful effects to the society like what should be our response or what in what way should we respond to using these kinds of um, um, uh, um, cheap technology like things that we can easily reach and um, that could mean harm to us and you know your center the geotech center deals a lot about uh, data and data is the fuel for the society in which we live both data for energy data for medicine manufacturing nanotechnology communications and space exploration robotics and the rest of them so your, your organization lends a lot of, um, um, do I say, um, food into um, this democratization of um, technology in our age. So how should we uh, approach this um, large um, uh, information or this great opportunity that um, this um, zero marginal costs or this kind of um, age in which we are, how do we approach it, you know? I, I understand that human beings have um, incredible instincts to survive in any situation in which we, they find themselves but sometimes we need to be educated on the best way to approach um, each thing that comes to us. Can you give any advice on this, sir? Sure. Um, so, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people that have been talking about whether you call it as, you know, a zero marginal cost society or an age of abundance. And I think certain things can be abundant. In fact, we know, for example, already that the planet produces um, more food than necessary to feed people. It's just unfortunate because we don't get it to the right places. In some cases, we throw it away and, and people go hungry. I think the estimates are we produce 150% of the food necessary to feed everybody on the planet, but clearly people still go hungry and we don't get it to the right place. And so it's an 
an interesting question of what things can be abundant. Um, and, and my assessment is we could work to make food abundant. We could make uh, clean water to be abundant. We could also, assuming you know we don't we don't waste it, but we could also work to make uh, clean energy uh, available as well uh, for folks. And, and, and that could be certain things. At the same time, there are other things that I'm not sure can be made abundant or at least get to zero marginal costs at the moment. Uh, yeah. Rare earth minerals, for example, that, that that's a problem and things like that. And so I would say for navigating this, it's, it's trying to figure out what things can you make abundant? Uh, but for certain things, you don't want abundant. Like we don't want nuclear warheads to be abundant or, or zero marginal cost to people. And, and the good news is some of those materials in the refinement process are difficult. And so if I was thinking about it, again, back to nuclear security, I would be trying to make it so that things that that, that are harmful to society or, or the risk of harm, um, try to increase the cost as much as possible so it's difficult for for, for people to pursue those because we don't want those to be democratized like like nuclear warheads. Or if that's not possible, make it so that it's as, it's as inexpensive and available as possible to at least identify and detect those who would either try to seek and pursue or obtain these things to mean us harm. So effectively crowdsourcing, uh, crowds, uh, crowdsourcing and swarming the space so that you can identify if someone is trying to pursue nuclear warheads for um, conflict purposes or power purposes or whatever uh, ends that would be uh, non conducive to a civil society and, and a larger international order too. That's great. Um, this really brings me to the um, topic of um, the space exploration. You know, some things that were impossible sometimes uh, ago, um, Elon Musk with his SpaceX missions has really brought these things to like, like very soon there will be tourism to space and, and, and another part of it. And this kind of uh, brings a futuristic um, kind of um, idea of what could go wrong or what could go right, you know, or what are the possibilities of, um, of the space? I, the question is this, like when it is very easy for everybody to access space, how do we kind of um, like bring the government of space so that people do not bring harm to others who are either early commas or those who are kind of a novice to that space so that we can actually exploit it to the best of our abilities for future and for the conducive um, um, kind of dwelling of those who might want to make it their their continual abode in the future like because your your organization has uh, a way of um, a topic or a subtitle of commercialization of space and you know when when it comes to trade you know there is a relationship people get to rub their shoulders and frictions must come up. So I wonder like what kind of idea do you have for um, the future of space? Right. So you're absolutely right. Space is one of those uh, areas that depending on the choices we make together, it could either be a place where it does benefit everybody, including people that don't go into space, um, but benefit from it, for example, in terms of either uh, services that are provided by space, in terms of broadband services and communications. Um, same thing also for GPS and, 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 and knowing where you are. Um, also, there could be the availability of, of making available images from space. That could help inform uh, soil use, conservation use, um, uh, land rights, or even or other issues that need to be uh, addressed in society. And so um, if we make the right choices, space could benefit um, everybody, including people that don't go into space. Or if we make uh, what I would, in my opinion, consider to be wrong set of course choices, it could be space is only for a privileged few and, and only benefits a privileged few. And, and that that is not a future that I think is going to be uplifting of as many people as possible. And so I would say for space, the first step is, is we learn by doing. Um, this is this is new territory. This is this is one of the things where 
you know, particularly for, for trying to map out this space, um, pun not intended, map out this area, um, we're going to have to do practices um, that, that actually show a new way forward, that show a better way forward and, and illuminate a way forward. And I think that's going to be important. And so I'd love to see security? projects involving um, either broadband from space and nuclear security. That, that's a good question. Uh, I was going to say, well, I think the first step to nuclear security is, is you have to have communication. So I would again go back to can space provide broadband from space? Um, can it provide images from space that are useful? Um, in terms of nuclear security, it could very well be it could pick up, you know, could we pick up signatures of those that are pursuing um, nuclear refinement um, or, or weaponization or things like that and make that available to everybody um, so that it actually is calling out those that would mean us harm. Um, yeah. And so um, I think that there's a lot of opportunities in space is particularly when it comes to um, nuclear security as a way to make it so that, you know, the, the old ways of requiring people to be on the ground for monitoring, which required access and, and required a scheduled visit, which of course could be, you could move whatever you were doing before the scheduled visit shows up. Maybe we could actually move beyond that and not require people on the ground, not to have, require scheduled visits, but instead have a persistent way of monitoring um, those who would pursue nuclear devices in, in, in ways that are harmful to the planet. Wow, yeah, that's very correct. The communication is the is key, like um, having communication satellites and feeding us information is really very important. And um, some countries that don't have their satellites can always um, link up to those that do have or um, doubt that the space has um, held great opportunities for us to exchange information and also keep us um, aware when there is any uh, nuclear security breach on the pipeline. Uh, this takes me to the next point, you know, technology has been so close to humans and it's also part of humans' inventions as a way of advancing in our in our space uh, in which we find ourselves. And um, we, we are coming so close. I, I was reading a book, The Eco-Modernist Manifesto, written by Michael Salembaga and his um, colleagues. And this, this kind of brings me to the kind of... Uh, a kind of thoughts that humans are becoming more advanced that we tend to leave those traditional ways of doing things there is a kind of large um, uh, rural to urban migration people are getting close to opportunities in urban urban places and uh, this kind of um, paints a picture of a new world that is coming up and um, it, it's going to come to a point where I was watching a movie where somebody that um, engineered a robot an AI uh, got to a point where he could not control it because the AI has learned so much to know to be self-aware and know when um, uh, uh, harm is coming its way. So I, I wonder, like, at what point do we need to decouple or continue in this nexus uh, of um, humans and technology? Can you give us some light? <laughs> like, I mean, like, I, I wonder, like, how will a machine or a robot I bought to aid my um, life or living come to uh, be a, a source of harm to me? Like, it brings <laughs> me to a point where I, I kind of wonder, like, at what point should we call it, okay, at this point, let's say, okay, there should be a decoupling, a, a separation from humans and technology or like keep it in the rightful place so that we don't get to it to harm's way yeah that's a very good question i mean like if you had the out you know if you had the if you had the foresight would you would you try to avoid pursuing a certain technology and i think that that's a really hard question but you, you you're absolutely right that 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 we actually had a we had an event and a discussion that's available on our website um with the geotech center about the risk of what's called autonomous systems paired with artificial intelligence and so you know artificial intelligence by itself um does not necessarily 
always have um, freedom of action. It could be it could be a recommendation system for humans, but a human's still in the loop or require a human to take action. But it's providing advice. But it's not. Um, it, you know, it, uh, it, I'm not certain necessarily say I would say the AI that we know now is self-aware, but it, it can it can it can make. Um, estimations and predictions that are useful to human if the human's in the loop. And then at the same time, there's this thing called autonomy or autonomous systems that operate independent of human action. And you can have autonomous systems that do not have uh, artificial intelligence and they're just following what's been told explicitly to them to do. Or you can have autonomous systems that are paired with artificial intelligence. And that gets interesting because now you're not being explicit to them as to what to do. Um, you may be, in fact, you, you will have to be explicit as to what the overall goal is, but you're not telling them exactly how to get there. And, and what the AI, in this case, a subset of AI called machine learning is doing, is attempting to optimize towards that goal in an autonomous fashion. And, and there, there are some people that that, that, that say there, there may have been a case where a drone that was autonomous, um, that was using uh, artificial intelligence, specifically computer vision, was used to hunt down someone, and, and actually in Africa, they're, they're, that's just one example of, 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 of it being used in a conflict situation. And, and that raises very interesting questions. Should, should, a, should we be able to use autonomous systems paired with AI um, on the battlefield to to track people down and, and or possibly cause cause them harm. And I would say, interestingly enough, the same approach to nuclear deterrence may be may be necessary here in the autonomous and AI space. Which is, um, what can we do to to deter people, um, to make it expensive to pursue, to make it so that if you are pursuing it, we see it. If if you do it on the battlefield, we call it out. Um, but we shouldn't be completely naive either. Which is a world in which these systems don't exist. That that uh, if, if we if we try to put a ban on autonomous and AI technologies, which which I think could be useful, but we should also recognize that 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 such a ban would mean that anyone who rolled it out with with no one else being prepared could actually cause harm. And so we're going to have to think about um, some deterrence strategy similar to nuclear that discourages bad actors from using autonomous systems with AI to harm others. Re really interesting, and uh, it's very uh, pertinent for us to understand that um, these AI systems uh, need to be really really um, uh, have some level of governance and um, it's very important uh, what you've said and um, the autonomous system must be under control and um, prevented from uh, uh, getting to the hands of those that might use it to to harm uh, the generality of people so yeah sir you, you've really um, uh, brought a new view of the prevent present and the future that we are expecting you told us of possibilities of the human mind and how you have also navigated and brought your organization to for uh, you got formed in the midst of fire and i am beginning to imagine that if you have survived getting formed in the fire it's just like looking at what the blacksmith does you know when the fire when, when the iron goes into the in the into the fire it gets that's when it gets beaten into shape into the shape and the form in which it is desired. So I, I'm beginning to imagine that the Geotech Center has been beaten into shape and form through the COVID um, uh, uh, dystopia, if I may say. So I, I, you have really demonstrated <laughs> <laughs> the great um, uh, level of wit and um, understanding of the situation in which we are. You have um, told us a lot about nuclear security and how we can monitor it from space. You have also communicated very wisely in a very vast and expansive way. And I would say 
say that uh, my listeners should just bask in the expanse of information and knowledge uh, you have really given to us. And this brings me to the point of how you have actually um, grown to this level of um, so much um, depth of understanding and knowledge and so much information about the useful facts we should know to survive in our world today. Like, I kind of wonder, like, um, what kinds of things has helped you to becoming um, who you are at this point, uh, Dr. David? <laughs> oh, that's a, well, I, I, one, I'm humbled and thank you. And two, that, that's a, <laughs> that's a, that's a the great question. I guess I'd say um, if I'm, if I'm able to do anything, it's, 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 it's first and foremost, a uh, huge credit to my parents. Uh, my dad was a Methodist minister. My mom was a school teacher. And, uh, um, and, and I think uh, that, 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 that that inspired me to to also strive to serve and make a difference uh, in the lives of others and and to be uh, um, you know try to try to try to try to at least give more back to the world than than, than I received and I, I did receive a lot because that the next thing I would say after that thanks to my parents was um, I, I just happened to have a fortunate case of uh, I encountered uh, mentors along the way uh, there was a uh, Dr Bill Jeffrey who at the time was at a place called the Institute for Defense Analyses um, later on in life. He was the CEO of Sanford Research Institute SRI, and 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 recently um, um, transitioned to additional role after that. Um, that just sort of cultivated a native and natural curiosity about how things work, but even more importantly, not just how they worked, but what we could do about it. Like, what can we do with this? What does that enable the art of the possible? Um, wow. Also had, had had colleagues with with the Bioterrorism Preparedness Response Program. Uh, I was just fortunate enough that I, that I, I was uh, working for the government at a very early age because of, of my ability with computers, again, cultivated thanks to my mentors along the way. Working with the Bioterrorism Program in 2000, 2001, responded to the events of 9-11 um, and actually was, was a lead part of the technology role for the bioterrorism program um, and then also uh, spend time in Afghanistan and I would say so so those positive experiences but I would also say you know I, I've been in circumstances where I've seen bad things happen I've had bad things happen I've had um, and, and I think if anything we, we sometimes we sometimes miss that we are a product not only of the the good things that happen in the goals yeah. but also yeah. our choices when when not so great things happen or bad things happen hmm. do we choose to be a victim of the circumstance or do we choose to find a way to find goodness in it and, and to find yeah. something that makes us able to be better and, and give better as a result. And so yeah. um, I often say I've lived a varied life um, and I, I feel very um, humbled by the friends I've made along the way. Wow. Um, and, and and I've also chosen a difficult one in that I'm, I'm an intentionally a person that tries to be nonpartisan, which which I know in the United States and I, I'm sure elsewhere in the world too, there, where there are representative forms of government is hard. That doesn't mean I'm neutral in my opinion, but it means I try to build bridges among shared values that are that are values led first as opposed to the flag that's being flown first and so whether it's someone that's in the same country as mine that has a value set someone outside of a different country that has the same value set obviously we're connecting because we both care about nuclear security and in square which has brought us together too um I try to be a bridge builder. Um, and again, that, that doesn't mean I don't have values. I, I have very strong values, but I identify with people with values first versus some easy mental shortcut, which is what flag or what pin you're wearing. Um, I think it's very keen to actually do that. And and I think we still need those bridge builders, even though it's not always an, an easy path to pick. That's really great. I, I sincerely appreciate like you've taken us through a very um, a, a important aspect of your life, how you got to the level in which you are. And so many people who are coming up um, uh, in the world 
people don't know how to get by over some things like some challenges come their way and they like begin to question the situation brings me to the last um, question I want to ask you uh, Dr. David I, I wonder like um, looking at Africa and the position in which we are both in terms of nuclear and also technology in general and geotech and how your um, organization like w- what kinds of um, opportunities or challenges or how how do you think uh, we should best um, approach having experience from maybe some uh, visits you may have had to some developing or some maybe um, uh, low resource areas uh, I wonder like uh, what's your view and what's your what's the approach you think um, uh, will best um, meet uh, or like emancipating people from this climb if you may say Right. Well, <laughs> no, it is a big one. Well, first, I'd be interested in your thoughts, and then I'll jump in too. But I mean, I, I really appreciate the question. Me, do you mind going first with your thoughts, and then I'll chime in too? I, I'd like to hear from you. Okay. Well, uh, we we live in a very traditional society, and uh, in Africa, we we are very communal in the way we do things. And um, uh, the Western culture, it's uh, somehow it it comes both with the good and the shocking part. I wouldn't say bad, but I would say shocking. You know, because um, there's this um, uh, life style of um, although uh, uh independence that the western culture has brought you know where people get to like be on their own for a very long time and this has um, been um, infiltrating in the lifestyle as well and also affecting the society so people tend to be more traditional more communal you know it's very normal for somebody to say that it takes a village to bring up a child and uh, when bringing up a child you know the person gets to mingle with the society you can get your neighbor and disciplining your child without getting any um, uh, um, um, uh, kind of um, uh, rebuke from the parents uh, in the olden time but these days it's becoming um, the other way uh, uh, this uh, means a lot I know I wouldn't want to dive into the diversity and the dynamics of these kinds of things but in my opinion I think that um, the people um, should solve their problems um, uh, in the unique way in which they feel and sometimes um, some challenges just comes as um, kind of um, something that uh, is brought hey you must respond to this and this makes Africa uh, seem to be the people that always leapfrog you know uh, there is no um, natural progression of how maybe learning from um, experience of um, technology or process of how things should go so, like the climate change for example you know Africa I don't think should be worried about climate change because there are other more pressing issues like meeting the basic needs you know rather than worrying about climate change like I had a guest that said that even if we triple our current energy um, resource like from fossils and uh, we continue using the way we are using we will contribute less than 2% to the climate um, uh, uh, worries you know so uh, I, I kind of think that um, uh, it's, it's a unique environment in Africa and we are very much communal and very warm hearted if I may say sorry maybe I might be too um, biased in that regard but <laughs> there are other warm people are also warm in every other uh, area but well, I kind of feel um, this aspect should be considered when um, <laughs> talking about um, African issues and uh, yeah I mean like if there is anything that technology does it should also impact the social 
aspects like the social um, lifestyle should be considered and then I know that culture evolves you know the, the, the way we did things before is not the way we should do it now and it won't be the way it, we will be doing it in the future so but it's kind of a complex mix but my own basic understanding is that um, we have a way of uh, a communal way of doing things and um, I think this should be considered in in, in things um, maybe when we're adopting western cultures or western technology or or, or ideals that um, that might be coming from the west so yeah right back to I, I think <laughs> I, I think i think that's very well said and, and i would agree i mean my I, i've i've had the fortunate um opportunity to be uh i was in i, I had an opportunity to travel and 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 actually work for a little bit in in ghana um briefly in Burkina faso and and also south africa wow um and so uh, I, I, you, your 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 observations match what i what i saw too which is a very very uh, warm and genuine and, and 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 friendly people um and and i would say common humanity um, um and 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 my wife also um she she had she spent some time in kenya as well and has very fond memories still there Ooh, um and so um so uh and i know several colleagues here in the states that, that come from africa that i consider to be friends as well and i i've, I've you know uh through through the through, through the connectivity of the internet I, I've, I've continued to have conversations with people and so uh, i would say you know again I, i'm probably not the person to give the 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 the, the solutions for for africa i would probably be the absolute <laughs> wrong person <laughs> but i would say <laughs> i can i can help provide some questions i can help okay. provide some some knowledge i would say climate change is clearly going to happen okay. and, and i do worry that it's going to it's going to hit those who were less responsible for it hmm. harder than those who were responsible for for some of the contributions which is hmm. not exactly fair yeah um, and so we may need to think some about the governance questions which is you know I, I, for example I, I have colleagues in Brazil and, and I was actually talking to them about and I, and I and this was several years ago and it now seems like there are some pilot projects where could you know could countries in Europe for example or, or here in the United States or North America uh, those that want to see Brazil Brazil maintain its its rainforest. Could they actually um, have a lease uh, where they pay uh, parts of Brazil not to cut down the rainforest at a amount that is more than the value that that Brazil would gain if they did cut it down? So that way, there's an economic incentive to do that. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Because I, I think that that's the only way we're going to really be sort of approaching some sense of fairness. Because otherwise, for us to say, well, you can't cut that down or you can't you can't do that um, when in fact you know 150 to 250 years ago the industrial era in Europe and the United States uh, advanced because we did do um, you know resource cultivation and things like that yeah. it seems a little bit disingenuous and so we've got to figure out ways to align interest um, and and think about uh, us as holistically as a planet connected together and I think that's where I, I probably Africa has a lot to share with the world on those views and I, I look forward to learning more I think I think the diplomatic guys will give a better answer because they always stand on a neutral ground you know <laughs> <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's it's such an amazing and um, uh, very insightful and informative and very enriching and like uh, to interact with such an erudite um, person as you, Doctor Bray David. I really appreciate the time and uh, the 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 manner in which you you took to uh, explain the issues and uh, surrounding uh, uh, Africa and also the nuclear security and also um, human capacity in general. I sincerely appreciate the time. 
time with you. And I hope that uh, we can have some time to talk again in the future. Of course. I, I'm really glad we connected. I'm really glad we connected through N-Square. Um, thank you for, for wonderful questions and your views as well. And uh, hope we can continue to connect. And similarly, um, if you do get to travel and you're passing through, um, happy to uh, host you for a lunch or a meal, uh, my oh. friend. I really appreciate this conversation. Thanks. I appreciate that too. Have a good day, sir. All right.